This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Promising Young Woman is one of those movies that you really, really want to talk about. And getting to talk about it with one of its stars, Bo Burnham, is really a treat. But before I tell you more about the movie, about Bo and my conversation with him, I have some news to share about Pop Culture Confidential. So we're partnering with Evergreen Podcasts Network. Evergreen is a great podcast community with shows covering movies, art, news, lifestyle, everything. So please check them out on evergreenpodcast.com. I'm so happy to be joining them. So writer-director Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman has already racked up Oscar nominations for directing and writing for Fennell, for lead actress for Carrie Mulligan, a host of other nominations and Guild Awards. And it's a knockout. One of the most interesting and surprising films of the season that has left many audience members squirming in their seats. Promising Young Woman is a candy-colored, gender-bending revenge thriller about Cassie, played to perfection by Carrie Mulligan. Cassie was traumatized in college after the rape of her best friend. She's dropped out of medical school, and by day she works in a coffee shop. But by night, she lures men in bars, pretending she's drunk. When they take her home and try to take advantage of her, well, she has a surprise for them. My guest, Bo Burnham, plays Ryan. Ryan is a pediatrician and former classmate of Cassie. At first, he seems like one of the good guys, a a romance that could go right. But it turns out that he was involved in that incident that changed Cassie's life. So to me, Bo Burnham is one of the most fascinating and multi-talented personas of our age. At age 16, he became a YouTube sensation, posting his own song recordings and videos that he then described to Wired magazine as, quote, pubescent musical comedy. To date, his videos have been seen approximately 300 million times. After high school, Burnham had his own MTV series, he's had three Netflix comedy specials, he's directed Chris Rock's comedy special, and in 2018, he debuted as writer-director for his first feature film, the critically acclaimed Eighth Grade, a coming-of-age story about Kayla, a middle school teenager who struggles with anxiety and has her own YouTube vlog. And now at the tender age of 30, he's getting rave reviews for his role in Promising Young Woman. Emerald Fennell, the writer-director of Promising Young Woman, has said that Burnham was exactly the type she wanted to cast in her film. She cast well-liked, handsome, clean-cut guys like Burnham, Adam Brody, and Max Greenfield as a way to sort of test audience expectations. So here, take a listen to Promising Young Woman. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, two, three, four. I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? 
What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. Cassandra? <laughs> We're in class together at Forest. You would have been a great doctor. What happened? I left under unusual circumstances. You remember what happened, right? Why I dropped out. I'm not the only one who didn't believe it. We get accusations like this all the time. Who needs brains? They never did a girl any good. I'm so sorry I didn't go with her. You gotta let it go. What are you gonna do? I don't know. Why do you guys have to ruin everything? We were kids. If I hear that one more time, I have to give him the benefit of the doubt. I was hoping you'd feel differently by now. It's every guy's worst nightmare getting accused like that. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I wanted to be a doctor my whole life. Lately, I've been feeling like I might want to get back into it. I got to talk to Bo Burnham about his critically acclaimed and difficult role in Promising Young Woman, about the conversations that the movie brings up. We talked about masculinity, his own comedy, thoughts on cancel culture, and more. Burnham was a delight, even though he was a bit late to our conversation. I had our end time marked as our beginning time. As I just, I've, I've increasingly lost all track of time or when I am over the last you year. You forgot about me, right? <laughs> yeah, that's you know. I, no, trust me. I have, I've, I have, I have a forearm tattoo of our meeting. Oh, my... oh, oh, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, I'm so, I'm so. Thank you so much for talking to me. I just want to quickly say before we start, this movie is just. I don't know, like a, a magnificent gut punch. I I spoke to Emerald Fennell a while back ago, but it was for The Crown, and I had already seen this, and it was like, oh my god, I want to talk about this. So I'm so oh, glad wow. I get to talk. Oh to wow! Yeah, and it's it's definitely a hard movie to not talk about when you can't talk about. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Emerald incredible. I'm really glad that I, I I didn't see The Crown until luckily after I had made the movie because I felt like. I would have been so intimidated by her. How talented she is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like good. To, I could pretend like she wasn't a better actor than me by far before I'd seen The Crown. So that was nice. So, Bo Burnham, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. One of the things that you've said about your very varied career that's been going on since you were 16 is that you've always been interested in, and I quote taking emotional inventory of what people and mostly young people are experiencing. So I'm wondering when you got the script for this film, um, what moment surprised you about what Emerald was saying about the female experience in particular? Well, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, for definitely in, in other parts of my career, I've like definitely actively wanted to explore certain things or portray certain things. But the sort of beauty of being an actor in something is that you really do subsume your own artistic wants to the vision of someone else. And it really was for this project. I just sort of, I read the script and was challenged by it and intrigued by it. And um, like many people, like, you don't know if, are you angry at some things that happened in the script? Are you upset? Are you scared? And it's like, I didn't really feel like I had a complete hold on what this story was saying, but I was very excited by whoever was saying it. And I kind of just wanted to be like a chess piece in the, in the game that Emerald was playing. Um, 
but you know, I, I found it just particularly very gripping the way in which she's she invited men into this messy conversation. There, it, it was a very, it felt like a very particular and tricky line she was walking in really harshly interrogating certain heterosexual male behavior while also letting heterosexual men like myself like recognize themselves in, in the men that were being portrayed. It was uh, because the truly the best criticism of, of anyone really is, is to not demonize and to make it relatable. And that's, that was, um, and also it was just deeply funny to me. There was, it was deeply funny to sort of, to criticize the, the sort of gentle, nice um, men who think that, you know, just cause they're bookish or just cause they, you know, listen to Alanis Morissette that they can't be terrible people and misogynist people. Um, that's, I just, I, it was more just, it wasn't a particular thing in this movie that I was most blown away by. It's sort of just the overall like tonal mixing and the sort of just the bravery of Emerald's like vision being so forefronted. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think is particularly interesting in how she depicts the female experience is how vulnerable that you see women are. I mean, of course, for example, you know, you drink too much at a party and, and, and you're immediately and you can be in danger. While Fennell herself has said that the worst thing that can happen to a drunk guy is someone paints a dick on your face. Um, and that sort <laughs> yeah, of yeah, difference yeah. between the vulnerability, I'm wondering, do you guy, are guys aware of how vulnerable women feel? Well, definitely. Well, I think very, f we, we definitely are not encouraged to wonder how they feel. I mean, I think in, in part, we are attracted to their vulnerability. Um, and like, it, it, she, Emerald really paints like the pickup bar hookup dating scene in such a funny way, in such a visceral, and, and you really understand how it's like, it feels so animalistic, like, and I was watching the movie going like, oh, wow, it really is weird that like we we choose to have sex with people in these dark rooms where the music is very loud and you can barely see each other. And like the men are dressed in in clothes where they can run at full speed and the women are dressed in clothes that or, or in shoes where you need to help them out the door if they get like they're 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 dressed structurally in clothes that when they get even a little bit drunk, it's going to make them very hard to stand up. Like there's, there's all these, I think there's the movie is able to do that thing that movies can do that unfortunately real life doesn't do, which is, Oh, now I can see it from the woman's perspective. If I'm a man sitting there. I mean, I think men are so heterosexual men, especially young men, like they're just, are, are trying to find someone to whatever be with sleep with are so neurotically and self-obsessively concerned with succeeding sexually that they're not thinking for a second what it's like for the person on the other end and no one's having that conversation with them no 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 yes exactly well definitely yeah it, it's just like there's such a fear of failure there's such a fear of not being cool you know it's it just it's so loaded but emerald is emerald is so right i don't think i heard that quote of her saying that the worst thing that can happen to is a guy yeah. yeah well there's that great line in the film where carrie says you know carrie says and you know 
Like that's the that's that's every guy's nightmare. And Carrie says, you want to know what every girl's nightmare is. So my impression is, and and yours may be different, that your character Ryan, he he sincerely believes that he's a good person, and maybe has compartmentalized what he's done. What kind of discussions did you have about him? Yeah, I mean, we we, we had a little bit of discussion. We didn't over discuss things because I think Emerald did want the actors, especially the male actors, well, also the male actors, to have some ownership over what their the guy was feeling and not to over intellectualize something that the guy themselves didn't over intellectual over overthink about you know it's it's and i do yeah to me it's not it's not that ryan ryan certainly thinks he is a good guy and the question of whether he is a good guy to me is like not totally relevant because i think the point of at least how he functions for me, if I step back and look at the film um, away from it, it seems to be even good guys can be a problem. You know, it's not that like, oh, all men are secretly, all men are secretly evil, or I know that guy might seem nice, but like close the door and he's twiddling his mustache. It's like, no, it's, it's, it's these, these problems and, 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 be one can be complicit even when they are to their core quote unquote nice and also that just niceness in general is pretty overrated as a virtue being nice is like is a pretty is a pretty weak easy virtue to be um but i think what what i remember as a young teenager just thinking that oh this guy's nice to me that means he's really special i mean you're supposed to be nice to someone it's not yes like yes a, you know what i mean he didn't do something bad to me oh that's great yes and niceness is also a total tactic i think like emerald really paints this well that like ryan is giving a performance over the course of the movie i mean it's a longer more longer more convincing performance than the guy that is trying to be cool just picking her up one night but if we're honest like all of us when we're dating someone for the first three months are are performing a version of ourselves and in, in hopes to to be liked by them um and 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 the question of Ryan to me in the movie that what's what's troubling about Ryan isn't like oh no like oh this guy that we thought was like a good guy like me ended up being a piece of shit it's like no like any we're we all are capable of being pieces of shit it's like it or, or we there's something inherently shitty in every guy needs to self examine in. in during this time and during this like reckoning and and i think because i think it's very easy for the audience to sort of look at all the other guys up to the point of ryan and go like well i'm not that i mean I, you know i'm definitely not that guy that's gonna bring that's gonna bring a girl home and forcefully kiss her or whatever even though they're they're probably lying about themselves and then about that and then ryan kind of gets to be your safe place and the safe place for the men to identify. And then, you know, it's sort of brutal, but Emerald ha has to then pull that rug out as well. Hey. <clears throat> oh, you, hi. One coffee, hold the spit. <laughs> she spat at my coffee last time. I'm back because um, I think you gave me a, a fake number the other day. It doesn't sound like me. I know. 
So I spent a few hours composing a like very witty, very romantic text, and then I sent that text to an oil rig worker called Red. Was he into it? Surprisingly into it. It was like immediately inappropriate, but it's not gonna work out because of the oil rig. So I thought I'd try you again. I just heard a phone ring in the back. No, you didn't. I most definitely heard a phone ring in the back. She has to take a few imaginary calls a day. Um, look, if you're not into this, totally get it. I'm not really looking to date anyone at the moment. Right, yeah. Me neither. Would you be interested in a friendship? And I'm secretly pining for you the whole time? In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. So what were you like in college? Were you famous at that point? <laughs> it was funny. I was at college age. I didn't go to college because I was touring and, and, and performing. And, and, you know, I was just like very lucky or whatever I was. I mean, I'm just kind of, just kind of a quiet sort of kid had, had a girlfriend from the time I was 16 to 22 from high, my high school girlfriend sort of was still with her long distance. And I, I was really not in that scene. And it's like, as I'm older, I look back and, and I used to, as I got older in my mid twenties, I, I, I got like upset that I missed out on all that culture. Cause it was weird. I was playing, I was doing, you know, hundreds of college shows, but I would just go to a college, perform a show and then go back to my hotel room alone and sit by myself. You know, it was like not, I did not live like a touring partying life. It was a very strange sort of isolated life. But then as I got to be 30, which I am now, I look back and I'm like, oh, I feel very blessed that I, I really knew where I was all, I, I can, re- I actually do know what happened from 18 to 22. Um, not many people can say that. <laughs> no, no. And, you know, it, it, it is not, and it wasn't because of some like great maturity on my part, other than just like, it's where my life took me. And I just happened to have this very specific, um, weird other, other experience. But I remember, you know, I was college age, just going from college to college and it being very strange because it, I could, I, I would just, pop into every college and look and I always found like the college environment to be and still do to to be very very strange like it's a very what it's a very strange mixture of like infantilization and freedom and alcohol and a complete divorcing from actual reality um yeah I think the the I think that I think the bubble of American college is just financially going to burst pretty soon, which as it should. But yeah, there, there's a, there's definitely like a, a cultural problem there that I, I think unsurprisingly leads to some pretty bad stuff. Do you see that problem in how men see you and treat women later in life from a sort of college environment? Yeah, I think so. But, it, you know, it's it, it, I, I wouldn't 
I would know chicken and egg, you know, which actually leads to the other, or is, or is the college environment the way it is because they are taking their cues from men older than them that are establishing the culture in the first place. I don't know. I mean, but I think a lot comes from, you know, Hollywood and movies that, that Emerald is riffing on, you know, like it, animal house, like a scene in animal house, Emerald kind of shows that like a scene from animal house, like just put some, scary sounding strings behind it instead of focus focus on the girl in the corner instead of the funny frat guy in the center of the room and and the scene becomes yeah it becomes absolutely horrifying or you know movies about waking up to find a dead stripper like that's actually not funny (laughs) that's actually that's a that's a real person that's a sex worker that's making a living and she's dead that's horrifying but like that's been a comedic trope you know, in 30 years of, of, of film. And I think that, I think that hugely influences the, the, the it's so strange. Like when I would go to, you, you feel when kids go to college and maybe, I think this is actually changing because I think Gen Z is, is much more conscious of this stuff and it's happening a lot less, but um, you go to, you, you just have all these ideas of what you should do or even, even as early as prom, it's like, well, you go to prom and you have sex for the first time, right? That's like what you do. It, it's a little bit of, it's sort of what I talked, did a little bit in eighth grade too, which is just this sense of like, when the cultural norms are established of these timelines of what you're supposed to do, they just happen. They just, it feels like they're sort of forced to happen. And you can under, and, and you see that like, oh, a line of consent is blurred or crossed because we have to subserve our, no, no, you have to have sex with me. It's prom night. Like, like the, the cultural that's pressure supposed to happen. Exactly. And like, it's not just the guy that's forcing this to happen. It's the culture that's forcing this to happen. So I think it's, I, I do think these large cultural conversations and reckonings me too, or film representation, like they do have actual like ground level uh, impact. So it is important to examine, to have big conversations. It's not enough to do like, I mean, you, you said this earlier, but it's not enough for your parents to give you the talk. Like we need to have the talk as a culture. Yeah, that's, that's, I think it's actually way more important than your parents having the talk is that larger, larger culture embeds that talk. And that was so brilliant about the movie is how um, you guys have have used these film tropes from, you know, rape revenge movies to the comedies, because I think they're so ingrained in how, um, Mm. especially when you're young. But I was thinking before our talk, because of my advanced age, I, I don't have my teen years on the Internet and I have two boys in their sort of younger teens. And as you were saying before, they're super savvy about things, or they seem to be at least. They're like, no, no, you know, very cautious in a way. But you, man, you were there in these years in between us. At age 16, you were kind of thinking out loud publicly um, Mm -hmm. or having a career. Is there stuff that you regret today that's on the internet? Oh, yeah. I mean, almost everything until three years ago. I mean, like almost. Well, but 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 genuinely, it's solid. Like, I mean, when you're 16, you you don't find like the I put out comedy specials basically. Well, I put out all this stuff when I was 16. Then I had comedy specials at 18, 19, 21, and 23 and 25. So like, my sensibilities are changing so much. And also like, comedically, like 2006, seven, eight, nine. At least over here, it was like the peak of the Comedy Central roasts and just like 
the, the whole thing was like, just be, be offensive and say ridiculous things. And so there's so much that I look back on and just cringe and I'm embarrassed by, but it, 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 it doesn't, um, it, it seems so in line with, as it should be, it feels like it should be. I should cringe at the things I, I, cause I, the, the thing I see of people online, I see people online that started when I was 16 and they're, they're my age now and they're doing the same thing they were doing when they were 16. And that seems absolutely horrifying. I'm, but, but no, I, I know what you're saying. At least that the fear of whatever a cancel culture being called out, like I've been called out. People have said stuff. I, I have like publicly apologized, whatever that means. Um, but I'm also just, I'm happy to be an example of somebody that has improved and changed over time and, and, Something I find interesting is that not all comedians survive their old material. And you have sort of been able to um, make mistakes and, you know, keep going and apologize, and, and, and which I think is very interesting. Why do you think that you were allowed to do that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, knock on wood. And like, <laughs> um, but, but, but yeah, I mean... I think, I mean, I think because like, I've never been resistant to the, I mean, you can just, I've been alerted by people more than I actually remember this, but you can just look back and there's videos of me at 21 before this all started, I was apologizing for my own old material. Like before it was a cultural thing where you had to like, I was, I was just not, I think people can tell when you're like naturally ashamed of what you did, or if you're just doing it because you're, and it's just, I don't know. I, I don't know. I also, I think a big thing is I'm not on the internet a lot. I'm not posting. I'm not always tweeting. So I'm not in everyone's face asking for their attention all the time. And then they want to, you know, throw something back at me. I'm only kind of engaging with the internet when I have something to share with them. So I think that's, I think it's a bigger issue. I don't think it's just the cancellation that people are upset about. I think people are just kind of upset at people that are always in their face, always insisting on sharing things, tweeting every day. And it's like, you know. But how do you feel about cancel culture in general? Comedians saying like, oh, we can't talk about stuff anymore. Well, they tend to say that in the middle of their three hour podcasts that they can't say anything <laughs> anymore. You know what I mean? So it's like, uh, I think you kind of can. And and to me, it it is it's it's a it's not this it's a bigger it's a different issue to me to me it it, it it's calling something by a totally different name which is the actual phenomenon that's happening that I don't think really has anything to do with offensiveness or people's sensibilities is that the audience now has a platform like you do and everyone's talking to everybody like people used to hear your jokes and and want to tell you that was offensive and you shouldn't say it, but they didn't have direct access to tell you about that. So that's what we're actually reckoning with. I don't think it's some gigantic change of sensibility. I mean, it is in some way, some, some of which is appropriate, some of which I do react to it going like, guys, it's a joke. We can kind of joke around Hold and on. we can, or, or there's some understanding that like, there's some level of irony that, that of course ex exists here. And, and um, there's a difference between, ironically being terrible and actually being terrible. Although, you know, some people are very clunky in their ironic. I, I, but I, my worry is that I see a lot of comedians that were me when I was 18 or 17, 19, being called out for being offensive or, or, or maybe choosing not 
being so cautious about the way that they write. And the problem is that I think the road to getting good is kind of being flag flagrantly making mistakes and figuring out, like that's kind of the only way you can figure out what to do correct is to kind of um, make mistake. But also I am not, I am not, like I am not um, nostalgic for the, the, the comedic world of 2007 where everyone was making, you know, like, racially insensitive, sexist, weird, homophobic jokes like that. I, I don't think that was. A and some people seem to want to continue to do that. That's, I think, is the problem, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, I don't know, it's a big, messy conversation that I'm like, I, I've always been happy to engage with. And that's what I think is. Um, yeah, I think that, that that's the sort of difference. There's also I also think a big problem in the culture happening is that, like, really, we are the entire culture is being defined by what happens on Twitter. And we believe that like the way people behave on Twitter is now the new cultural norm. And Twitter is like a very specifically designed social space that I really think like breaks people's ability to speak to each other and think to themselves. And like, I really try to stiff arm that away from me. Uh, and, and I am happy to engage with, um, anyone in an honest conversation about what should and shouldn't be said and what 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 material we should re reckon with but the other thing which is i mean the whatever cancel culture is i mean i don't really totally believe in that phrase but i definitely think that mostly what that is driven by is an out of control media complex online that is driven by a need for more and more content and every day needs 13 or 14 stories so is dry so to me, it's it's like sad story of all of us having to feed these small fledgling and sometimes largely owned media companies more and more content. And we're just like chopping each other up as as fodder for feeding the monster. Yeah, yeah. So like that, that's it, it, for me, it's like actually no much more of like an economic issue than a, the, it, it's an economic thing disguised as a social thing as, as most things are. Well, I only have two more minutes. I want to ask you one, two more questions. One about your mom, who seems like a super cool person, I have to say. But I understand there's a funny story that she um, first took your stuff the first time you did anything when you were like 16. She took it off the Internet and then she yeah, yeah. was cool with it. But but it, I'm, I'm not sure if you have kids, but I mean, I do. Would you take their stuff off the Internet? Oh, that's interesting. I don't have kids, but I, I yes. I mean, I would be very, yes, I would, you would. not. Mm -hmm. Well, I would be, people would be surprised. Well, not surprised, it's probably natural that it goes one way or the other. I mean, yeah, I would, I would not let, I would be very strict with my kids' phone time. And I think like if your parents are strict with your phone and your internet time, you should actually be grateful for them because they are like the one people, like every corporation, every, every corporation wants you on your phone as much as possible. So like you're, you're your parents standing are actually kind of being brave standing against them. And uh, we, just, we just still, we just still have no idea. I mean, we're starting just now to see what being on your phone is do, did to people like me that are 30. And, and I'm looking around and I see millennials and I'm like, Oh, we're broken by being on our phones and watching television our whole life, let alone what's going to happen to these people that have been on their phones since they were three years old. You know, we have to like, yeah, I think it's, I think it's uh Scary. And and finally, we started the conversation by talking about um, 
the conversation about this movie. And I think it was um, Carrie Mulligan who said that she was surprised by people's candor um, from both sides, people that have been really outraged about the ending and those that haven't and how open they've been. Um, what have you encountered? What, what is it that's making people uncomfortable when you're having conversations about the movie? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think I think I think a conversation is easier to have always about a movie because a movie can can externalize the thing that would be too difficult to talk about if you were literally talking about yourself. So you can talk about you can talk about Ryan's guilt instead of your you know your brother's guilt that you heard or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, and so I, I think a movie in some way does the opposite, where it just it allows you to speak where you couldn't normally speak in your own life because you can, you know, you can go. Um, I have this friend of mine who, instead of that, you can kind of talk about. I have this, you know, I saw this movie, and let's let's debate it within the safe confines of a story. Um, but yeah, I think I think I think the movie gets people wanting to talk and wanting to condemn and wanting to defend, and I think that's what Emerald wanted was just a movie that 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 sparks a, a conversation and yeah I, th- I, I think it's to something earlier I said which is it, it's the subtle way in which the men are defined specifically to me which is they, it allows them to be identified like are you the kind of guy that you know would would recommend a David Foster Wallace essay to some girl like yes then like you're welcome here are you the kind yeah. <laughs> and it's like I think that's um and I think it is because like Emerald is a good person and a smart person and 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 you talk to her and she's a you can tell she's a very socially intelligent person with that with a lot of friends that a lot of people love and it's like because she understands people well and because so she's able to reflect them well and because like well-reflected people in a in a messy story is always going to start a lot of conversations but are you surprised at guys being like what i didn't understand that we were doing anything wrong that type of oh yeah well i have (laughs) justice for ryan like like ryan was you know um well i I no i mean definitely not surprised um and and, yeah no (laughs) but i think that's always gonna i I, you know i just think it's i think it's good that the guys that felt that way would watch this movie at least they're watching the movie i mean that's a good step that we that like that, that, that the type of guy that would have that thought would at least watch this movie. And maybe this is like the first step to chipping away at that, at that thought. Bo, I'm, I'm, I could have gone on another hour just talking about this, but I think my time is up. I thank you so much for taking your time oh, with well, me thank and for you. this movie. And... Great. Well, thanks, Christina. Take it easy. Thank you so much to Bo Burnham. We'll be following Promising Young Woman all throughout the award season. Um, In most territories, it's out in streaming. And in Sweden, it will be in theaters in April. So don't miss it. And thank you so much for joining me on Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. See you next time. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, 
toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, I think that was good enough. I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) Right.